0: Thanks for listening. The following audio is a teaching from Calvary Tucson's Young Adult Ministry, Ignition. For more teachings, information, or if you'd like to support our ministry, please visit us online at ignitiontucson.com. We pray you're blessed by the message. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your faithfulness. Lord God, thank you that uh, you care about what takes place in our lives And that you've provided all that we need, Lord God, to walk in godliness. You've provided everything that we need, Lord, to walk in righteousness. Um, And you've provided, most importantly, everything that we need, Lord, to go to heaven through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so, Lord, we come tonight uh, placing our faith and trust in Jesus as our Savior and placing faith in your word, believing that it is true, that it has been preserved through the ages as a roadmap as your uh, written letter to us, Lord God, communicating your heart, your desires, what you want for us, how you interact with mankind, and so forth. And so we look at it tonight, once again, as the authority for our lives, the authority for truth, and we ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit tonight, Lord God, that you would be faithful uh, in teaching us, Lord, and bringing to remembrance all that we need to know and understand. To- to walk uh, in Your will for our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 48. So many people take time to prepare their speeches, prepare what they're going to say. At various occasions in life, right? If you're going to propose, some, some guys really make sure they prepare what they're going to say, how they're going to break that down. Or like your wedding vows, right? Some people will prepare what they're going to say at the altar to their loved one or accepting awards. These celebrities, you know, they'll prepare some long speech. But I feel like one thing that people don't prepare for as often is what they'll say on their deathbed. But I think they should. It's pretty important, right? Those are your last words. And I think it'd be wise for us to take time and be like, hey, what would we communicate? I mean, this is the last thing you're going to say to those around you. What would you want it to, how would you make that count? And have you taken the time to consider that? Have you taken time to consider at all what your deathbed might look like? I think it's a good idea to do that. To consider what legacy you might be leaving behind as you lay on, on this bed knowing you're not getting up and you're not going to make it out of that room? What will that moment look like for you? And what will you say to those in the room? What, what will you share with them? What significant things would you feel led to communicate to them as your last time talking to them on earth? It's pretty heavy, I know. But it's important to think about I think it's very significant. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were men who knew the importance of that deathbed conversation. They did. They prepared for it. But they were also led by the Spirit of God as they spoke on their deathbeds. In fact, it was very significant. When they spoke, their words were prophetic. Now, that's not the case with everybody. And some people's deathbed conversations are a little more significant than others right? You can look up famous last words and see a lot of funny things that people have said on their deathbeds, like very insignificant, very insignificant words. It reminded me of Narnia, the movies in Narnia where Reepicheep, you know, guys know Reepicheep? And he's like tearing everybody up. And then he's always like, you know, choose your last words wisely. And the guy's all, you're a mouse. And he's all, you people have no imagination because everybody just says that about him when they see him. You're a mouse. A lot of insignificant words said on people's deathbeds. That wasn't the case with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Being led by the Spirit of God, um, they made a point because they understood the promises of God. They understood the importance of sharing the experiences that they had with God. And so they did not die without communicating that to their children, to their loved ones. And by the way, that's a good question too. Have you shared your testimony with those around you? Have you taken time to actually share the hand of God and how He's moved and how He's revealed the love of Christ in your life to people around you? Do you keep that to yourself? Share that with people, share it with your family. So, really, what we have here in these next two chapters is Joseph's deathbed experience as he communicates to all of his sons before he passes into eternity. Now, Joseph just settled his family in the land of Goshen in Egypt. They've been there for about 17 years, and that's where we now pick it up in verse 1. It says, After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty, appeared to me at Luz that's that's Bethel in the land of Canaan and blessed me and he said to me behold I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make you uh, of you a company of peoples and I will give this land to you and your offspring after you for an everlasting possession so Jacob shares what God has done in his life this isn't the first time Jacob's communicated God's promises And God's word to his sons, he's a good spiritual leader and he does that. But this is what he chooses to talk about on his deathbed. He said, Oh, he said it before, he's now repeating himself. But it's so significant that this is what he wants his last words to be. Remember what God did in my life. Remember the the promises of God. And I'll tell you guys, in these moments when you're with somebody on their deathbed, it has a way of giving you a sense of what's really important. Like typically when someone's on their deathbed, you're not talking about the score of the latest game or the weather outside. You get a little deeper. You start to understand what, what actually matters. You start to think of eternity. I've spoke with a lot of people uh, as they've prepared for death. I've, I've spoke with people who were really ready to die and to hear the words, similar to Jacob, to hear their words it was an inspiration to me of eternal life. And there have been those who were scared, and I, as the pastor came alongside them to give them that hope. But I'll tell you that that is when people really get hungry for a hope beyond the grave, is when death is imminent, it's, and it's, it's going to happen, and it's right ahead. People really start to think, what is going to happen? Where am I going to go? And as I said before, it's not just the one who's passing away, it's the family, it's the loved ones who are experiencing the loss of their father or mother or sister or brother. They're hungry for a hope, something they can hold on to with regards to death. And I've been in these situations, and I can't say it's ever helped for me to say, "Hey, you had a good run, buddy. We'll see it. See you on the other side, hopefully, maybe. I don't know. But you did good. Hey. Don't worry, you were successful. People liked you. You died with a pretty big 401k. So may you be at ease right now, buddy. You know? None of those things really are helpful or useful. And it's certainly not useful to be like, hey, did you keep all the rules? Like, did you, at least the top 10, did you, were you even able to keep those? That's not helpful. In fact, the only thing that brings comfort, guys, in this, when you're facing death is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The hope of eternal life that is found in faith in Jesus Christ. Because through faith in Christ, you have a certain hope. And I've seen, as I've shared the Gospel message, as I've reminded saints of the Gospel message, on their deathbed, I've seen their countenance change. I've seen the joy in their faces. I've seen the relief. I've seen it on loved ones. It's actually a, a, a very honorable uh, service and it's such a privilege to be able to come alongside people of faith when they're facing mortality, when they're facing death. But sharing the Gospel, even singing songs. I've been in hospital rooms, in the ICUs where their loved one is, is unconscious and is dying and, and they're there to pull the plug, so to speak, and we sang hymns. And you see the thickness the the victory of death and its oppression in this room just dissipate as everybody remembers where they're really going and what's really happening. That is the hope of Jesus Christ. And Jacob realizes this as he's laying on his deathbed. What does he do? He reminds Joseph of God's promises. He says, hey, Joseph, don't forget, God went out of His way to choose us as a people, because He has an everlasting inheritance for us. Speaking of the promised land, but more importantly speaking of the everlasting kingdom of heaven. Verse 5, And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are mine, he says. In other words, so Reuben and Simeon were the first and second born for Jacob. So he's saying, Ephraim and Manasseh, your kids, Joseph, will be just as significant as my first and second born sons. And the children that you father after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. We don't know if Joseph had more kids, but if he did, he's saying all those other kids will be considered in the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh. That that they will take part in the inheritance of the twelve brothers, these two sons, he claims them as his own, and they will share in, in directly in Jacob's inheritance, not as grandsons. Now, in doing this, you think, well, did he skip over Joseph? Then, what's up? Where's Joseph's inheritance? Where's Joseph's blessing? He'll give a blessing to Joseph, as we'll see in chapter forty-nine. But essentially, what he's doing here is he's giving Joseph a double portion through his sons. The portion that was allotted to Joseph is allotted directly to his two sons. And so he's honoring Joseph by doing this. He's honoring Joseph's children by doing this. But he's also doing something very smart. And that is, he's taking these two boys who grew up in Egypt. They never experienced the promised land. They didn't grow up with Grandpa Jacob. They didn't grow up with the stories of the patriarchs like the other family members had. I'm sure they heard it from Joseph, but they're Egyptian kids, right? They're like snobby, rich Egyptian kids that grew up right there in Pharaoh's palace. And what he's doing is he's taking them and he's saying, your real inheritance is not the worldly wealth of Egypt. Your true inheritance is the heavenly wealth of God's promises. There is a greater wealth for you guys. And so I am making, as your grandpa, I am making sure that this is the inheritance that you guys receive, that this is the inheritance that you guys appreciate and emphasize. And he's saying you won't be remembered as those two snobby Egyptian kids that grew up in Pharaoh's palace. You will be remembered as two significant tribes in the nation of God. And I love this. I want you to be known as God's people, not as Egyptian people. I want you to be known uh, and famous not in Egypt, not in this world, but in the kingdom of heaven. May your names, uh, he says, not be so much known in this kingdom. May they be forever known in the kingdom of God, the kingdom that matters most, right? God's kingdom. And in doing so, Jacob makes sure to emphasize this spiritual inheritance and the spiritual significance above the worldly wealth, above the worldly significance. And really, guys, this is, number one, something we should strive for. We should make sure we're most concerned with our heavenly reputation, not our earthly reputation. God forbid you chase fame and fortune and your status here on earth and have a measly sad status in heaven. That's sad it would be a, it would be a very unfortunate thing to carve out a big name for yourself in this life but compromise hugely in your reputation spiritually in heaven do you realize a lot of the spiritual giants that we're going to meet the people that are wildly famous in heaven you will have no idea who they were on earth because they lived in utter obscurity it's going to be flip flop that's why jesus said the first will be last the last will be first And Jacob, what he's doing is he's making sure these boys, though they have the opportunity to be first in this life, that they would rather strive to be first in the kingdom of heaven. And to me, this is a great example of a spiritual leader, as a man who leads his family. It made me think of a a sermon I was listening to a couple years after I got saved. I was pretty young in the faith, and I was listening to Christian radio, and there was like a men's conference taking place, and Mike Singletary was on. Do you guys know who Mike Singletary is? He's an NFL uh, player. He was a defensive player for the Chicago Bears, I think in the, late, in the late 80s when they won the Super Bowl. And he was a head coach, but he's also a devout man of God and a, and a, and a pastor. And so he was there sharing at this men's conference. And I love what he said. He said, I, I make sure to emphasize to my kids that as important as it is to get an education and, and do well, yeah, yeah, I want, I want those things for you. But let me tell you, my hope, my greatest expectation for you is that you would know Jesus Christ and you would walk with Him closely. Man, that we would emphasize, like Jacob did, we would emphasize that, spiritual inheritance. How many kids, I don't know, Maybe how how many of you maybe perhaps grew up and your parents just hammered you? you got to get a college education. You should join the military and serve your country. All these things that are good... But at some point in time, they became overemphasized over your spiritual inheritance and your pursuit of the kingdom of God. May we not be parents that do that. May may as we raise up the next generation, may they know that our chief desire for them is to know Jesus and walk closely with Him, as Jacob did. That their names would be more honored in heaven than they are on earth. Verse 7, When I came from Padan. To my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan, on the way. When there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, in Bethlehem. And when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Now as he's dying, he, his eyesight was going, and so he didn't realize they were in the room, likely. And so as he's explaining, I want, I want to bless Ephraim, I want to bless Manasseh. And he's talking to Joseph, he's like, "Well." Who are, who are these guys with you? He said, it's Ephraim and Manasseh. And there's this grandpa moment where he gets all excited that they're actually in the room, that Joseph brought them. Now, he brought them because he knew the significance of the patriarch passing away. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, even if you go all the way back to Noah, how significant it was for these patriarchs and their last words on their deathbed. He knew this would be very important and special for Ephraim and Manasseh to come. But this was also God ordained because Jacob wanted to bless them. But he gets all excited that they're in the room, that, that they're actually present. They're going to be present with him as he passes. And so he's like, come on, I want to give them one last hug. So he gives them some grandpa love there. And then Joseph anticipates that moment of, of prophecy and that moment of blessing. Verse 12, it says, Then Joseph removed from them, uh, them from his knees. He bowed himself with his face to the earth. And, took Joseph, and Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand. The right hand is the hand of blessing, by the way. And he brought them near, and Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was firstborn, and when he blessed and, and he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless these boys. Some have pointed out perhaps a Trinity reference there with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit being there. The, the shepherd, the one who has been, uh, been alongside him and, and the angel who delivered him. And in them, let my name be carried on, it says, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So, there's a few first references here. There's this thing in the scripture called the law of first occurrences. And whenever a word or subject pops up for the first time, More often than not, it's very significant. And this is the first time that God is referred to as a shepherd in in verse 15 here. And it's not a coincidence that the man who's calling him a shepherd was a shepherd his whole life. Much like David. David had this same view of God, right? David was a shepherd for many years, and he saw God as a shepherd. Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Jacob had the same view of God. All these hours spent in the field, all these experiences as a shepherd were like, man, I feel like this is what God must think when He looks at me. When He's feeding the flock, He's like, you know, God is my shepherd. And when He's protecting them from wolves and predators, He's like, God has been my shepherd. God has protected me. When the, the sheep come up and head, headbutt Him and nip at Him, He's like, Sorry God, thanks for being my shepherd, you know. Like, I realize this is me sometimes. Jacob has the sense, this is God. This is God's heart. He's our, he's our shepherd. And he says, may this same God who's shepherded me, may He be a blessing to these boys. Verse 17. It says, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. He takes initiative here. He's like, No, Dad, that's not that's not right. And he starts to grab Jacob's hand to move it on his other son's head. Verse 18, and Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. Now I could just picture Jacob with this calmness. Joseph is probably thinking, oh, he's, I think he's slipping a little bit here. I don't know why he would do this. That's just kind of weird, Dad. Why would you cross your arms? I clearly set this up for you. And Jacob just looks at him. and He's like, I know, son. I know. He also shall become people. He's saying, I know. I know you care about your firstborn. I know. I, I get it. I get the love that you have and the expectations you have for that firstborn. But it doesn't always work out how you think do you remember when Abraham had Ishmael and it was the work of the flesh it was out of a lack of faith they said well we're still not pregnant yet and we're like creeping up on a hundred we better make this happen and so they brought in Hagar into the situation to be a surrogate mom and Abraham impregnated Hagar and they had Ishmael and Abraham loved Ishmael as his firstborn son. And God had to come and say, it's not Ishmael whom I have chosen. He is not the son of faith. But Isaac shall be your heir. And Abraham says, no, may this one live before you. And God's like, I know. I know that you love Ishmael. And I'm going to take care of him. But this is not the way. And that's not a Mandalorian reference either. I I cannot say that anymore without thinking of Mandalorian. But this is the way, son. This is the way. That's what he says. So, verse 19, his father refused and said, I know, he shall become a great nation, a great people. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, by you Israel will pronounce blessing, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh, Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. He's saying, don't worry, they're both going to be blessed. In fact, it's going to be a saying. Man, may you be as blessed as Ephraim and Manasseh. That's pretty blessed. If you become, like if you look up the dictionary of blessing and your name's next to it, that's pretty blessed, I'd say, right? But Joseph expected Manasseh, his firstborn, to be given this position of preeminence. And yet, once again, it goes to the younger brother and this happens so many times by now. Like you shouldn't be surprised by it if you've gone through Genesis with us. What it, it happened to Cain and Abel, right? Abel was the blessed one. Uh, going on down to Noah, Shem was the chosen son, who likely wasn't the firstborn. And of course, Abraham. It was not Ishmael. It was Isaac. For Isaac, it was not Esau, the firstborn. It was Jacob. For Jacob, as we'll see, it's not going to be Reuben, his firstborn. And spoiler alert, it's not even going to be Joseph, his favorite. And here we see it's not going to be Ephraim. It's not going to be Manasseh either. So we should not be surprised. And Jacob's like, I know, I know. Welcome to my world, right? Get used to this. God doesn't do things the way we do things, God does not show favoritism. God does not regard the things that we regard. Just because someone looks a certain way or is born in a certain place, or has a certain position of wealth or status doesn't mean God approves of them or God has chosen them. God does things differently. He says, I know, son, but you've got to learn this is how it works. And I've got to say, it, it says it displeased Joseph. And I find some comfort in that. Not because I like when people are displeased, but because here we have Joseph, this amazing, godly man of integrity, who were, he was in tune with the Lord. I mean, he had some of the most horrible experiences being faithful to God, and he always had that awesome attitude, like, I trust God, God's going to work this out. He was sold into slavery, and then he was framed and thrown into prison in a foreign country, and the whole time he's like, I trust God, God's going to work this out for my good. But it, 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 it comforts me to know that even this man had moments of displeasure and disappointment because his expectations weren't met with the Lord. Right, He expected God to move in one way with regards to his sons and God moved in another way. And it was actually a moment of disappointment for him. And so, just realize this, guys. If, if Joseph is going to experience disappointment and he's going to be off with regards to his expectations, you probably will be too. Your expectations, the way you want God to work in your life, maybe the person you want God to bring along in your life for the timing of your career, whatever it is, we need to hold these expectations with open hands because God does not see things the way you see them. And here's here's the comfort in it. God knows better than you. God loves you more than you love yourself. And He knows what's best for you. So may we hold our expectations with open hands realizing this about the Lord. Verse 21, Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. This would be fulfilled in the Exodus. Uh, Moses would bring up the bones of Joseph. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. But this was the area of Shechem where the brothers slaughtered that city. It was somewhere in that area sometime during that era he acquired this. Uh, it's actually brought up in John chapter 4 uh, with the Samaritan woman. Hey everyone, Pastor Sean here. You've been listening to a teaching from Ignition Tucson, the young adults ministry of Calvary Tucson. Our hope is that through this ministry your heart would be ignited to live boldly for Christ if you live in the greater Tucson area and you're between the ages of 18 and 28, we wanna invite you out to join us in person. We meet every Thursday at 6.30 p.m. at Calvary Tucson's East Campus on Speedway in Camino Seco. We hope to see you there. God bless.